Everyone up, everyone in. Time for the fun to begin. Come along with me, Lookout Bear, on a brand new adventure. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Michael B. Moynihan here, Zubilee Zoo's resident adventurer, Lookout Bear. I, along with my friends Paul. Hello, Zubaroos. And Billy. Welcome to the show. Have teamed up to bring you an informative and entertaining deep dive into the loving world of Zubilee Zoo, one episode at a time. So please, Buckle up and join us for When You're in Zubilee 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 Magic and wonder are waiting for you So come on with us now And discover the wonder of you Welcome to Zubilee Zoo That's right, you can listen to the brand new Zoobly Zoo podcast, dropping the 1st and the 15th of every month, wherever you get your podcasts, or at electronicmediacollective.com slash pod. Hey everybody, this is Butch Patrick, that's right, a.k.a. Edward Wolfgang Munster, and you're listening to Moose's Monster Mash. Christmas, Moose brought to me. Making sure you never hike alone this next Friday the 13th with Vincent DeSanti. Welcome, horror hounds, to another installment of the 13 horrifying days of Christmas. I'm your host, Moose, and what would a 13-day tribute to horror and Christmas be without a nod to Friday the 13th? If you caught my Friday the 13th special, you heard us talk about his movies. Well, here to talk about him some more is actor, writer, producer, director, pretty much does everything in film from Never Hike Alone and Never Hike Alone in the Snow and any and all upcoming sequels, Mr. Vincent DeSanti. Hey, man. Thanks for uh, having me. It's good to be here. I'm glad you're here. As I mentioned in the special, th- there are two, like, and I haven't seen 13 Fanboy yet, but as far as, like, um, the, the, the Jason Voorhees movies are concerned, there are, like, two quintessential fan film products out right now it's never hike alone in the snow and vengeance are like the top two uh film series and mm-hmm. it's like this is it's a good time to be alive to be you know a fan of the franchise mm-hmm. oh definitely i mean i think that uh, fan films are really kind of ramping up i mean we did another collaboration with uh james sweet and carl winery at um Red Crow Films for Jason Rising. Um, you know, our good friends um, across the country in New Jersey made his name was Jason. You got Cody Falk with Voorhees. You know, the last, um, I'm trying to remember what Slash and Cast one is. It's like the last, the fall of Camp Blood. There, there's a lots of um, lots of, uh, of films coming out. And I think right now for the, for the horror fan, I think Never Hike Alone sort of set uh, an example of, hey, 
you know, we've caught up in camera technology. You can go out with your friends now and make a fan film if you put your mind to it and create something that looks cinematic. You know, if you put together the right pieces, you can get some alumni involved. And, you know, with the lawsuit going on and everything, it sort of opened up the floodgates from the fact that we were able to do it and find success with it. And now with no official product coming out, that has opened the door for other fans and myself to continue the series and sort of keep Jason alive in a way that it's, you know, his creators really haven't not to say without, you know, lack of effort for either or anybody, but you know, when you get into this legal stuff and it comes down to stuff that none of us have control over and timetables that none of us have control over and an outcome that like only two people really have a control over. Um, you know, there's probably a million people in this world who'd want to make a professional Friday the 13th film and nobody can do it. But because fan films allow this loophole to exist, we're all sort of taking advantage of it and, and creating new and fascinating ways to present Jason Borges to his fan base. It's a fantastic time to be you know, a, a horror fan in general, but especially a, you know, Voorhees fan because you're, you're right there's so many fan films coming out and it's the only thing we can get and they're all stellar I mean everyone is ramping up their production value mm -hmm. to not necessarily outdo the other guy but just put out like the best fan film and we're getting quality cinema here yeah, I mean, the, the, the medium has definitely evolved from where it started. You know, when you think about, um, you know, I think there was one, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but it came out in like the late 2000s. Um, and I, I apologize to the filmmakers because they did a, a really great job uh, back then with just like, you know, at home HD uh, recorders um, or, you know, the old H, the, the old tape you know, yeah. video, home video cameras, but it looks like it's shot that way. And I think that as filmmakers, we all have that dream to have that cinematic look. Oh yeah. Um, you know, um, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of that, I think it's that, you know, not even when you're doing fan films, but just when you're making films in, in general, your goal as a filmmaker is to make it as cinematic as possible, to make it feel like it belongs on a big screen that people can't tell the difference between your product and something that was shot with $50 million. And, Obviously, things that are shot with $50 million or just any sort of budget definitely, you know, they stand out and they have certain things that, you know, a level of standards that are really hard or at one time were really, really hard to uh, replicate. But now, you know, anyone who's got a filmmaking background um, who can get access to equipment that is rentable and affordable and you can put, you know, a team together with people who have enough experience to operate the equipment, um, you can start getting yourself closer and closer. And I, I know that that was the goal with, with my team at Womp Stomp Films. Like, yeah, we wanted to make Friday the 13th. And I love Friday the 13th. I'm a huge fan of it. It obviously comes forth in the work. You can see the passion, you know, on every frame. Um, but that is equal to the passion I have of becoming a filmmaker and wanting to tell cinematic stories. And as much as I'm pushing my Friday the 13th of it and kind of telling these stories, I'm also pushing my team technically to be like, how do we find the equipment and how do we shoot this? And what's the best way, what's the best visual language for the, for this scene or the film in general, or what's the theme, you know, pushing things that sort of, I learned in my career onto these films um, and trying to replicate it with far less money than, you know, they've ever received, you know, the first, Friday the 13th was made for $700,000. And ever since then, they've been made for over a million. And so to go out there with 50,000 and, you know, 60, 70,000 um, to do these projects, it sort of makes you be creative. Um, it limits you and what you can do. But within those limitations, you have to find ways to um, 
wow your audience and, and tell comprehensive story. And I think that that's sort of the balance. It's, you know, a balance of telling a good story, but also coming up with things and working with artists and working with stunt choreographers and actors to come up with scenes that really resonate with fans and make them feel like, wow, I can't tell the difference between this and something I watched on Netflix last week. Um, and if you can do that, then that's sort of like, that's the upper echelon of, of where we're all trying to get is that like, yeah, you might watch these on YouTube, but you could have swore that like this could have played on shutter just as easy. Oh yeah. And, you know, and so I think that that's, that's, that's really the goal. And, you know, the long-term goal of our company is to, to make original films and to do that. But right now is a special time in Friday the 13th history where the films aren't being made. Um, they're legally blocked from being made. And, Right now, fans have control. It's kind of ridiculous. You know, I, I, you know, in 10 years, 20 years, when they look back on this span between 2017 and, you know, say it takes till 2023, 24 to get a new movie out. I mean, this, that, that span of, of time is going to be populated by dozens of fan films that are all taking cracks at different levels of, of production value. And, you know, it's kind of cool to sort of be, the first one out the gate, we were the trailblazers, you mm -hmm. know, obviously there were plenty of Friday the 13th films that uh, came before us. Um, another one that I want to mention is here comes the night. They just did here comes the night too, which just came out, which yeah. is again, it's shot very well. It's got a cool, interesting story. Um, these fan films allow these filmmakers to tell stories that the studios would never dare to take a risk on. You know, most of the time we're just going out spending our own money. So no one can tell us what to do. And we just use, you know, crowdfunded money to sort of finish off the idea. Um, and people get behind it at different levels. And, you know, people are willing to take that risk, which is really great. Fans are willing to take a risk by investing in other fans who have experience um, making these films and trust them to sort of create the product and spend the money in the right way and give it to the right people uh, in order to execute a film to completion. And so, so far what we've seen is, you know, a majority of these films have gone out. They've raised the money that they've raised. The people behind them have completed these films. They have put them out into the world people have watched them in theaters they have received blu-rays they have watched them online they have talked about them online and you know it's keeping the franchise alive in that discussion and even the controversy of it has sort of kept it alive of like how are these films possibly to be made and there's people out there saying these people should be sued but i mean when you really look at it from the outside in you know, why, <laughs> why would you want any of us sued for just making these films? I mean, most of the time, anytime you talk to these, any of these filmmakers, they'll tell you that they take the money that they get from these crowd funds and all of it goes into the movie. And at some point we end up putting our own money in the film just to finish it. Um, so there is no lucrative gain to do these things. It's just a lucrative advantage from a fundraising standpoint to say, I now have the funding to go out and get that Cinecrane. I can yeah. now go out and get the camera and the lens and I can pay for a portage on to be out in the middle of the woods so we can take a poop somewhere. <laughs> we don't have um, to use some, the bushes. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, like as much as like we were happy to poop in an outhouse that was out of commission for 30 years on Never Hike Alone, you know, it was nice to have a mobile um, production station on Never Hike in the Snow when it was, you know, 10 degrees out and our effects artists needed a, a, a warm place to work or else things won't set. So, you know, sometimes the, the money gets spent on things that's not that glamorous, but it gives us the opportunity to do the glamorous thing. So without that motorhome, even though it sounds like, oh, what do you mean you have a motorhome on set? Well, that motorhome allowed us to build the prosthetics that we're able to shoot to do the axe in the mouth gag and run all that stuff. That motorhome had heat. The motorhome had heat, had a place for people to warm up and not die. So it, it was, 
you know, it, it, it serves its purposes, but it's, it's one of those things that if we were just out there doing on our own, we wouldn't be able to afford it. But fans are trusting us with those things. And, you know, as much as the, the money goes into a motor home or goes into renting, you know, tables and chairs and things like that, that go towards the boring stuff. There's also all the special effects. There's the camera equipment, the lighting equipment, the locations, the costumes, um, the shipping and handling, the building of all the perks. It, it's a lot of work. And so, Yes, it's nice to crowdfund and do these films and raise money, but the flip side of that comes a lot of work and responsibility. I mean, the Never Hike in the Snow crowdfund took me almost a year and a half to complete because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. We got delayed and delayed and delayed. And, you know, I owed people, I owed 3,300 people something. Yeah. And we gave them a movie and then we waited, you know, we waited our way through the pandemic and got through it. And, you know, eventually got all those discs shipped and I'm still sort of like things go missing, things get broken, still dealing with those things even now. And so I get to make these films, but I spend more time on the support side of it versus the, oh, I just get to make the movie and go back to my life. Like I live in this like 24 seven and it's like filmmaker and IT guy. <laughs> yeah. And IT guy and salesman and shipping master and, and all these different things. And I have help, you know, I have Kyle Klein, who's my, my working producer, um, who does a lot of work with us and, you know, does a lot of work for me as far as like getting things done, getting things booked, helping me ship. Like he's the, he's the one who spends the most time here wrapping Blu-rays with me, just stacking Blu-rays, me and him race to the top of a stack to see who can tape his stack the fastest, <laughs> like do all this stuff and, and, and makes it monotonous. So I'm not just here doing it by myself. Um, you know, Kara Michelotti, who's our line producer. We got Brittany Montero, who's one of our other, um, you know, one of our onset producers and, and script supervisor. And, you know, they're all people who sort of, behind the scenes, keep the ball rolling. And we're always kind of looking towards our next goal and what we're doing next and what we've got to focus on now. And it's a lot of work. And in between that, we're working full-time jobs. I mean, Brittany works at Netflix. Care is a very successful commercial producer here in Los Angeles. Same thing with Kyle. He works, he does a lot of um, production managing and, co and coordinating for other commercials and, and TV shows. I work on, uh, on AD staffs for TV shows and AD, you know, feature films and things like that. So we all have jobs here. And they require a lot. Like I work 60 hours a week minimum and we all do. And we all put in more time. And then on top of that, we do these films and we work hard and raise this money so we can take the time off um, knowing that, Hey, I've saved up. I've made my money so I can take two weeks off. And I have all the money that I need in our you know, budget to go execute all these things. And so these are my vacations. My vacations are working through making more films and I'm going to keep doing it until either someone stops me or I make something that, you know, gets me original feature and I get to do it that way. Oh yeah. See, I was wondering what your day job was because as I was looking through your credits, I came across a story coordinator mm -hmm. for uh, Freebirds. <laughs> yeah. That's you like look the... at all the movies and that one kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. <laughs> well, oh, well, all, all the animation stuff really does stick out. I worked in animation for about seven years. Wow. Um, Freebirds was the first film I worked on. And I, it says story coordinator, but I did a lot more than that. I was the story coordinator. I was the editorial coordinator. I was a assistant to the director. I did a voice in the film. Wow. Uh, two voices, actually. I did the old woman and I did Mr. Anchovy. Nice. Um, just quick little things. Um, and I also, what, what really kind of stuck out to me in that job 
was that I got to work on the development side of Freebirds. When I started that job, the, the only piece of story that existed for the movie was two turkeys discover a time machine and go back to the first Thanksgiving to take the turkey off the menu. And that was the pitch. <laughs> and the, the cachet was that it was going to star Owen Wilson and Woody Harrelson um, and all these other different things that were going to take place. And I watched it go from, you know, a seeded idea that got planted into the ground and go all the way to the theater. Now, how the film came out and how it did and how it got reviewed, like that's not in my control and none of it was sort of in my control, but I did have the ability to have some input and I was there for where the decisions were made. And I watched a lot of people who worked at Pixar and Blue Sky and DreamWorks and Illumination and I got to work with a hero of mine, Scott Mosier, who did Clerks and all of Kevin Smith's stuff and yeah. is now and ended up directing, you know, How the Grinch Stole Christmas is doing more work for Netflix right now. Um, he's one of my heroes it's from childhood because I watched Clerks going up. I watched Mallrats. I watched Jay and Silent Bob. And Scott was such a big, um, you know, proponent behind it. Like he was the motor that drove Kevin Smith's machine for a long time. And so getting to learn from him and getting all of these sort of, industry staple people in animation to sit down with me on days and say, Hey, here's, here's a story secret. Here's a secret for how you tell a story. Here's a secret for how you write a script. Here's a secret for how you set up a scene. You know, I had Jimmy Hayward who did uh, Horton Hears a Who, and he also directed Jonah Hex and he was the director on Freebirds. He taught me about scope and scale about, yeah, we don't have the most money and we don't have Pixar budget, but we can create scope and scale in these certain ways. You can cheat camera moves in these certain ways. Uh, working with story artists, showing how sequences should be laid out in story from shot to shot. You know, working with the editorial staff, how do those shots get cut? What shots do you need? What shots don't you need? You know, what do we miss on the first pass that we need to do in the second pass? And I was in charge of delivering all this information between all these different people to the people that needed to execute all of these ideas. And so since I was a conduit for that information it was sort of like going back to school it was refining communication it was delivering communication to artists and making sure that they knew exactly what needed to be done so we weren't wasting time and wasting money on say if i wrote you know the chickens run down or we always called them the chickens because they were the turkeys but you know the turkeys run down the hallway and the director said they're supposed to go right and i accidentally write down that they're supposed to go left well that could screw up a whole like visual continuity thing. And then a board artist has to go back and fix those things. And so that's, that's a very simple example of it, but it was something I had to be, I had to think about continuity and being a big Friday, the 13th fan. One thing I definitely paid attention to was continuity because there were so many continuity errors in the Friday the 13th <laughs> franchise. So somebody so, had to. <laughs> yeah. So go being a fan and having the fun of tracking the continuity errors kind of I became really good at it because I knew what to look for. <laughs> I knew all the mistakes Friday the 13th had made. So I was like, well, at least I can keep this film from making the Friday the 13th yeah. mistakes. Um, and that turned into one job after the next. And I just started working my way up the ladder until um, I was eventually working as a line producer, uh, tracking the budget for a, um, what I was on was about a $10 million animated film, while I was also sort of assisting another film, which is about a $40 million animated film. Um, and learning how to track budgets, learning how to schedule films, learning how to do, do SAG paperwork and book time at ADR studios and, and run an entire team and run an entire team worth of people. And at the same time, I started working on Never Hike Alone. And so I started to apply all those things that I learned in animation to Never Hike Alone and sort of how to execute it from a story standpoint, how to write it, how to you know, tell, get the visuals going, how to shoot our different locations, how to reuse sets and things like that. Um, 
eventually I left animation and um, after my experience, I never hike alone. I sort of knew enough to get through that process, but it was definitely harder and more trying than it needed to be. And there were things that I had to go back and redo because I had to learn a lot of lessons. And I sort of wanted to do what I did in animation, which was figure out how to make an animated movie from scratch, but do that in live action and understand more about the live action workflow of things. So that's when I shifted over to working in live action in 2017. Um, my first you know, I did a couple of, um, I mean, right out of the gate, I, I jumped the line. I actually ended up second ADing a few um, independent features for like Lifetime and Hallmark. Um, it was really easy work for me it, compared to some of the line producing work that I was doing. It was just basically doing the call sheets every day and getting the cast dressed and things like that. Um, and then I started working on actual union productions, which meant I had to drop all the way down to PA. And so I started on The Rookie. And basically from there for working on the rookie for two seasons for ABC and then bouncing around and doing a lot of day playing and making stuff in between um, really began my sort of second education on what is the, what is the industry standard and DGA way of executing films and how do we, what's the set procedure, you know, what things do we have to look out for? What rules do we have to follow and all those different things. So again, applying that knowledge, um, to what I had already learned sort of gave me that missing piece of, okay, this is how we execute. And really never hike in the snow is a, is a very good example of what happened to our production value. Once we really learned the proper way to do it and, um, you know, say what you want about never hike in the snow, it being short and all these different things from a technical standpoint, um, we executed the crap out of that movie. We oh, did it definitely. in far less time. Um, the And in the far less time that we actually sh had to shoot the film, we had more cinematic value. It had bigger scope. It had bigger scale. It had bigger effects. And we executed it at a much, um, you know, for the money that we spent, we were getting more out of it. Well, as I say, and I definitely want to touch on that here in a second. Yeah. L listening to you talk about this, it is definitely more than a job it is a passion mm -hmm. you know filmmaking and the film process is a passion and ha having now heard all this two things come to mind one mm -hmm. somebody needs to update your imdb <laughs> because half of that wasn't on there uh, and no, it's all on there but it's all spread out to different things and sometimes i don't know you end up getting different <laughs> stuff but oh yeah and all and all the all the the tv stuff none of it's on my imdb yeah. i mean i've worked on Two dozen. I mean, I worked on Lucifer. I was on American Horror Stories. Um, I did uh, some other, you know, Apple documentaries. I worked for an HBO show. I mean, it's I've had the opportunity to, to stand by and watch really talented on set people, cinematographers, directors um, knock out great stuff. And me just sit back and take mental notes and be like, oh, that's a great camera move. To, I mean, even today on set, I, I watched them execute a camera move that I was really sort of that I fell in love with. I was like, wow, this is a really great way to tell the story. Like this isn't typical. This isn't our usual, like, Oh, we set up the, like there's sort of a formula that you can shoot with in TV that I can almost like, I try to predict this, the shots before they do them just so I can be like, Oh, I bet when they do the scene, they'll cover it this way, this way, and this way. And this was one that sort of like, Oh, this is different. And this is nice because it's the opening of the show. And um, this is a great, cinematic way to bring us into this narrative and this is interesting i really like this and so um you can learn i mean that's the whole thing it's like when i'm not directing i'm learning uh what sparked this passion i mean what what really drove you into the film industry 
So a very young Vincent was sitting down watching a film called Pee-wee's Big Adventure. In that movie, Pee-wee drives through the Warner Brothers backlot and basically picks up Godzilla, Santa Claus, runs through a Twisted Sister video. And it was the first time I ever thought about the concept. And I was really young. And it was the first time I ever thought about the concept of all of these things being made in one place, that there was a building with all, like every building was filled with some fantastical movie or set or something. And, and obviously then it was larger than life. And I always wondered what that was like. And I've always had an interest in entertainment. I always loved making people laugh and or scaring them or something. And, you know, I never really knew that I was going to work in the movie industry. I just knew that I had a love for it and a passion for it. And I loved watching them. And when I got to make them on, you know, home video cameras or something like that, I got, I took any opportunity that I could, but I, I, you know, I thought my life was going to take a different path through sports and different things like that. But it was in college where I just sort of fell in love with it. I started taking an editing class. Um, I wanted to do TV production at that point. It was what I was majoring in to maybe do some broadcast stuff or work in a newsroom. The film stuff just kind of stuck. I just found a narrative voice and I just started looking for work. And, you know, I didn't come from a pre prestigious school, I came from a pretty small school that mostly taught documentary filmmaking. When I left school in Massachusetts in 2007, I, there were no opportunities in Massachusetts at the time that I had at my disposal had no connections. I knew nobody in the industry. The only person I knew was uh, my best friend who I grew up with um, since five years old. We played on a little league baseball team together and we've been friends ever since. And um, he got involved through the entertainment industry through uh, visual effects. And so he went to school for it and he ended up getting a job out in California. Um, and I just bugged him all the time. I said, you let me know when a job opens up at your company and I will apply for it. And so a job ended up opening up. I applied, I got the position um, and it started my career. And it was really, I never intended to move to Los Angeles. I didn't want to leave Massachusetts. I wanted to figure out a way to work at home, but there was no option. And so I moved to LA and I've been here since 2008 and found a way to make a career. And I've had a lot of different experiences and I've worked in development and post-production and actual production and animation, live events, um, live recorded shows, um, you know, I've, I've seen it all. I've seen almost every single type of production and all it does is help me with what I want to do is be a director and tell stories. And, you know, the more that I can come out here and at, be a sponge for everything that I experience, you know, it just helps me become a better storyteller. It really shows between Never Hike Alone and Never Hike Alone in the Snow that you are still constantly learning, constantly adapting your style. The story in both are really great, but then you get to Never Hike Alone in the Snow and the cinematography and just this, the set shots are just outstanding. And the thing that really sets it apart is, and it, it's such a simple shot, but the crimson blood on the white snow, you know, I mean, it, you would figure it's just such a simple thing, but when you actually see it, Jason doesn't do that. He's, he's always at Crystal Lake. You know, put him in the snow. It's an oddly gorgeous murder scene. I mean, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it films beautifully. Thank you. Yeah, no, that was, I mean, that part of the film was really, it was years in the making. It was an idea that I had very early on in the process of Never Hike Alone. It was one of the alternate ideas that I had even to the original story. It wasn't set in the snow at the time, um, but it was a kill that I sort of 
back, like I put in the back burner. I was like, okay, we're not going to pull it out for Never Hike Alone. He's going to get away. Um, it's going to be a different story from what that version was, um, which was very, very different. It was, it was very, and both films are oddly enough are modeled after five minute shorts. So with Never Hike in the Snow, I ended up sort of taking that sequence and saying oh it'd be cool to see jason with the bow and arrow he'll slow down his target and then hunt them down with the axe and finish them off um and i think with that it was as soon as i had that sort of penned out there was a sort of a different version you know early on where it was an adult that was killed um that accidentally kind of crossed paths with jason and you know i think one thing that I like to do is when I come up with an idea, I don't like to just like come up with the idea and then like go do it because usually that's like, it's nice and it's filled with all these energy and it's filled with a lot of great intention. But what ends up happening is that the shot, the flaws kind of show themselves too late in the process. And you sort of have to deal with um, the outcome of that. And I usually like to come up with an idea, pen it down, write it down and then walk away from it and let it resonate and think about like putting weeks and months of time into the thoughts of the execution of like, yeah, this is a great idea, but how do I execute it? How do I make that on set? How do I make that happen on set? What's the visual cue that I really need? And then start to examine it. Like, have we seen this before? Is it too goofy? Is it, you know, what, what's setting it apart and, and what's going on here? And what am I not paying attention to? What is, what are the, what's the thing that I'm going to think of two months after I release it to say like, oh, you know what? I never thought about this. I think for Never Hike in the Snow, the thought that came along was like, you know what? Like in Never Hike Alone, we really tried to ground it. We really tried to make people feel like if Andrew or if Kyle got killed, um, that they would feel for him. And, you know, we got a lot of backlash from that for saying, well, you know, it's a Friday the 13th movie. You got no kills in it. You know, the two people that are killed are sort of killed off screen. Um, the kill that you have on screen is a dream sequence. So it doesn't count, you know, so kill some people like make your Jason scary again. For me, making Jason scary, was about the intensity of the fights and him constantly coming after Kyle yeah. and showing how much of a survivor Kyle is. And so to sort of like open up another chapter of the movie, which is actually a prequel, um, to show Jason sort of like what life was like before Kyle McLeod. What was life in Crystal like supposed to be as far as like if he's been surviving on his own for 25 years, Jason, and people have been going missing, how has he been able to, one, get away with it? And two, who are some of these people that went in and never came out? And three, these people aren't just cannon fodder. They're people. They're yeah. like Kyle. They're like, we should love them just as much. And so I think with Never Hike in the Snow, I sort of wanted to give fans what they want and then remind them that Never Hike Alone is a little bit different and our story is a little bit different. So we ended up sort of peeling back the layers of the Mark character who is nameless and faceless or sort of nameless at the beginning of the movie and sort of like an everyman. And then all of a sudden you start to learn his name and you learn that he has a mother and you learn that he had this very sort of, you know, not emotional, but really heartwarming kind of moment with her before he left. And how many times, and, you know, I really wrote it for parents or anyone who's ever lost anybody um, to think like, wow, what's the, what if this is the last time you saw your kid leave? Um, then it starts to change the perspective of that opening scene about, you know, you were cheering this death and you were like, that was great. But now you're sort of like, oh, and by the time we dissolve back into Mark's dead face, all frozen and stuck in Jason's attic as another victim, you realize that Jason has ripped the life out of someone else's life, just like his life was ripped out of another life. And there's all these sort of um, similarities between Jason's life and, and Mark's life and that 
you know, Jason and himself is sort of wondering why he's still doing this. Um, after all these years, still murdering children and murdering people's kids doing exactly what happened to him. But is he making the world a better place? Is he, does he feel any better? Does it really give him anything? Um, and anytime he feels that doubt that his mother appears and reminds him why he does it and reminds him that it's okay and that he's okay and that he's loved and that all these sort of symbolisms that we that were presented in Friday the 13th in the original films but never really sort of explored too much like Pamela pops up here and there in some of the sequels but she was never you know, we never really got to see their relationship and so to see it post death for both of them um sort of reminds us that this is a supernatural affair that this is a supernatural story that these are you know revenants that these are you know ghosts from beyond the grave that are coming back and getting their revenge but jason is sort of wondering why he's still here has he not spilled enough blood to get revenge like is he going to have to do this until the end of time you know there's sort of as he's dealing with that and he's in his trance you have this moment where tommy jarvis who has been searching for jason there's finally sees signs of him um it goes to do something about it and is stopped by the police and by rick cologne who has never seen jason in his entire life and doesn't believe in jason and so you have the people who are doubters and you have the people who don't believe in Sasquatch and that there isn't a monster in the forest and people just go missing, or at least that's what they want to believe because that's the more acceptable answer. And I think the frustration with Never Hike in the Snow is that there's a lot more story to that. There's a lot more to explain about like, why does Rick feel the way he feels? Why is Rick so hell bent on Tommy? Why hasn't Tommy been able to find Jason? And these are all things that were set in motion um, and we're supposed to be delved out through a three series arc in the miniseries before the pandemic hit. And when the pandemic hit, it really just set us back and we couldn't implement any more story and we couldn't tell, we couldn't follow up Never Hiking the Snow with something was like, I know like it ends there, but picking up from the story and going to here, here's sort of the fallout of that event. And here's how it leads into Never Hike Alone and, you know, opening up the story of Jason and all that stuff. So that's why we're really excited about We've gotten through the pandemic for the most part. We think that by next year, we should be in a good place where we can get back to set. We can shoot the movie um, and and finish the, t the tale. And we're not going to do the three episode thing anymore. We're just going to condense the three episodes into the original feature that was supposed to be there. I have been, you know, cutting things out to just be like, what's essential? You know, I would really love to do this scene where like 10 people die in it. But you know what? Maybe the focus needs to be um, getting through this moment and then we can replace that with a scene that's a little bit more manageable financially, um, but still gives us some carnage with Jason and some cool things. And obviously it's a dynamic between the both. We want to tell as good a story as there is, you know, there are kills um, and then do that cinematically and release something that feels like fans could see as an extension of the original franchise and you know if they chose so choose to back us and support what we do that for some of us fans this is how the series continues and until they make a new one and redo it and reboot it or do a new sequel off of something like this is what we got and we hope fans like it and you know hopefully in so far we've been lucky enough that enough fans have have shown up when we asked and and support what we do that's what I really like about your style with Never Hike Alone is you skirt that line really well between, you know, the, the lot of kills and the story. I mean, as a fan, yes, you want to see Jason do as much damage as possible, but you can really get that anywhere. What I really like about Never Hike Alone, like you said, 
is you, you get that more intimate story with the characters. So the deaths mean more. You know, there's more of an attachment when somebody gets offed. It's not just carnage for carnage. And the characters aren't cannon fodder. They're not dumb. Yeah. You know, they're they're capable. And that's what makes it scarier. I think that what makes a horror film scarier is not the character that can't take care of themselves and ends up wandering into something and getting themselves killed, but the ones that fight back and the ones that do have an upper. I mean, Mark has an upper hand on Jason and the fact that he's way faster than he is and he's able to run away. And Jason's answer to that is to pull out a bow and arrow and slow him down. And so I think one of the most you know, heartbreaking things about Never Hiking the Snow is how close Mark gets to getting away. And that's sort of part of the tension. It's not only Mark getting away, but how close Jason was to being discovered. And I think if, you know, people go back and watch the ghost cut, which I, I really highly recommend yes. because it gives you a different perspective. The whole, if you watch that, the ghost cut, the perspective is really from Jason's perspective about how he's been surviving in Crystal Lake for about 25 years. You know, our film picks up around um, the end of Jason Takes Manhattan. So after Jason's been washed out to sea because the whole Rennie thing, seeing a young Jason, that doesn't make any sense. Well, let's just pretend she's still high on heroin. And the actual Jason was melted and like spit out into the ocean and eventually returned to Camp Crystal Lake, nested and healed himself and sort of hunkered down, returned to where it all began and began hiding and began saying, you know what, enough of being flushed down drains and blown up in houses and shot by Tommy Jarvis. Like I'm going to avoid people as much as possible. That means I don't have to kill anybody. I don't have to draw any attention to myself and I can just sit at home and do this. And the disappear music video is really about Jason coming to that realization that maybe he doesn't want to actively kill people anymore. That, you know, these people show up, he's like, well, I got to get down to business and he gets down to business, but he finds no satisfaction in it. He, he kills these three kids and he realizes it's like back to the same old shit. Like nothing's changed. Like what, what am I doing here? And sort of falling back into that sort of reclusivity and never being found. And, you know, if, if Tommy was ever to show up at camp, sort of like staying out of that, you know, not attacking, but letting people walk into their own spider web. And that's what, what sort of Kyle's story is about is Kyle venturing so deep into Jason's world that Jason has no choice, but to act. And it's only when Jason is pushed against the wall, like a wild animal that he has to spring out from the shadows and do something about it. And at that point, it's not about trying to kill Kyle. It's about protecting his secret. And if you go back and watch the film with that perspective, you start to see it from Jason's perspective about sort of only doing what he has to to survive and then being tested and how close he comes to being found in Never Hike in the Snow. And that it's just going to be three months later that it's going to happen again. Well, see, I've always thought that... Uh... Jason just wanted to be left alone at Crystal Lake. Mm -hmm. You leave him alone, the deaths are done. Yeah. If you don't go into Crystal Lake, no one dies. And if you and if you think about sort of like the strategy of, of Rick Cologne, which is he he made the Wessex County um, wildlife uh, protection thing. Um, that's where the kind of the camp is now. It's like when Kyle talks about it, he's like, oh, it's it's a it's a wildlife preserve now. And so that was created. We, I think as fans, we should pick up on that and know that wildlife preserve, like, oh, they did that to hide Crystal Lake. Mm -hmm. And if you get the, you know, in the back of the camp of, of the Never Hike Alone um, script, we actually did a thing where it's, Rick wrote a letter to the mayor saying that, like, we need to 
get all these things off the map. Like we need to stop letting people find these things and we need to pretend like it doesn't exist because the more people that come out and look at these things, the more people that go missing and no one can explain it. And that's sort of going to be some of the theme of Never Hike Alone too, is finding out that Rick, you know, isn't just arbitrarily not believing Tommy. It's that Rick has done his homework too. He's gone out to Camp Crystal Lake. He's dragged the lake. He's done everything. And he's found nothing. The only thing he ever finds at Camp Crystal Lake is Tommy Jarvis. I'll let the fans fill in the rest of the gaps on as far as like who Rick probably thinks is responsible for these things. Because at one time, this crazy person was a hero in town who defeated Jason and since hasn't done shit. Oh, yeah. He's an EMT going around like crazy Ralph be saying, telling people that Jason's still out there. Well, he's only telling Jason people are out there because then people maybe will believe he's a hero still. And how far will this guy go to prove to everyone that he's still a hero? Will he pretend that, you know, people are missing or is he going to make people go missing and, and try to get the cavalry out there? And then what, create another scenario where he's the hero again, not on Rick's watch. You know what I mean? And so I think that that's why Rick's so hell bent on taking him down and, and cutting him onto the knees. But, you know, and I think Tommy is hell bent on proving him, proving himself correct. I mean, the audience is on Tommy's side. We, we know Jason exists. I think one of the reasons what's so frustrating about Never Hike in the Snow is the fact that Tommy gets so close and Rick gets in the way and we don't get that resolution. What we get is another layer of the problem, which is because Tommy and Rick aren't on the same side and they're fighting each other and the side of good is has internal conflict, an innocent life is lost. You know, if Tommy and Rick had an actual conversation with Mabry before he wandered into that camp, he might still be alive. Yeah. If Rick was open to the conversation, if Rick, you know, wasn't so hell bent on, on saying that Tommy is, is a psychopath, then maybe, maybe they do something about it. Maybe they all walk into that cabin and find Jason on his knees and raise their guns, Pulp Fiction style and blow him away, <laughs> you know, but that doesn't happen say ch -ch -ch again <laughs> yeah right and it's it's sort of like i think that that's one of the most poetic things about the movie is that like that's life yeah it would be great if everything worked out perfect but people don't get along and because people don't get along things don't work out perfect right being unbalanced as a community doesn't allow them to deal with the actual problem that's at hand instead they blame each other and their internal conflict is creating more damage on the community than they realize you know and i think that you know after never hiking the snow rick's gonna feel it he's gonna feel that guilt he's gonna feel like if he had just said something or did something maybe maybe wouldn't have gone in there and he has no answers for what have happened and it pokes a big hole in his case he had tommy in custody so what happened to mabry tommy must have had a trap something mm -hmm. he'll 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 come up with some reasoning behind it but you know, it's just, it's poking the holes and it oh, isn't yeah. until Rick finally sees Jason for himself that he'll ever believe. And so that's sort of kind of one of the cool arcs in the film and, you know, other things that we want to do that sort of bring all those unanswered questions to, to rest and really sort of bring even a closure to the Friday the 13th franchise itself from the standpoint of, you know, you can, you can reboot it, you can do whatever you want, but there is a definitive through line from friday the 13th part one to part eight and it's consistent as and it can get wacky but there's a through line and so never hike alone is really supposed to meant to be the continuation and the finalization of that through line to let that storyline finally come to an end before we move on 
in the films and the actual you know world that if they're going to reboot it and start over like they should fix a lot of these things like oh, yeah. they should go in and fix the dates and fix the the logic and sort of build something that fans want but give it to them in a simplistic way but let it be its own thing um because you're not going to be able to sell wide audiences on like all right we're going to go in and retcon up to part six you know what i mean like they're gonna be like what are you talking about part six i haven't seen part one you know for this whole new age you've got to find a way to retell this story in a way that's sort of what the old film wasn't which it wasn't built for a franchise and so if you remake the films and you reboot the films you have to remake them to be built for a franchise with two three four films ahead and that's one thing I always kept in mind when writing Never Hike Alone. It's like, where does this story go? And even though the story has changed over the years, I have always kept in mind what the next two, three films would be if there were to be them and what my options are. And to always think, oh, if I'm going to do that, well, I'm at least going to set it up here. And I won't you know, spend a whole scene just trying to set something up that's not going to be paid off. But saying that like this has to be consistent tonally. And that's something I learned in animation was when you're looking at a film, you have between 36 and 42 sequences of, of film that, you know, that are built of different scenes that if you do something in the first scene and that character does something completely opposite of that characterization in the 12th scene, well, then you got an issue. So you got to track those things through and you got to be thinking ahead and you got to be connecting all these different things. You can't write for the moment. You got to write for the bigger picture. And you have to make the moment as entertaining as possible, but it has to fit into a certain theme. It has to fit into a certain characterization. It's got to fit into a certain style and remain consistent. And I think where you'll find a lot of other independent things struggle is in that consistency, is in that ability to stay focused on what the task at hand is for the film versus like, oh, this would be fun. And you know what? Sometimes this would be fun has its place in the Friday the 13th films. Like, you know, Jason killing the paintballers. That yeah. wasn't in the original script, but they said we needed more kills. So they came up with something and it makes no sense. But it's fun to watch. It's fun to watch. And it's only fun to watch because the actual execution and delivery of what happens is mm -hmm. entertaining enough to warrant it. Like, you know, I've, I've been in development houses where, you know, the common phrase is story is king. And story is king. Story is very important. And that if you don't have a good story, you don't have something that interests people and draws them in, well, you're, you're not going to have much. That said, what's the story to Clerks? <laughs> right? What's the story of the Big Lebowski? You can kind of do it, but what's the most interesting thing about those movies? The characters. Yeah. And the set pieces in between that are so entertaining that you just want to watch them over and over again, even if it's just five moments. And that's usually what we're taught is that if you can come up with five moments in a movie that fans can remember vividly, then you've done your job. Because most people forget the in-between details. They just remember those five moments and they screw up everything in between them when they pitch it back because they either looked away for a moment or they coughed. They haven't, like us, watched it a million times. You have to watch it a bunch of times to get every single detail. Yeah. But if in those five moments you can tell an entire story, then you can actually win over an audience. And that's all that really matters to them. They'll forgive you for other things. Um, and those are certain things that I was, that I was sort of taught and the, the approach that I take when I, when I make a film, it's, I understand that I'm shooting for those moments and that if I can create those moments, then I can find a way in between them. 
And I can do that in a way that's economical and paced well. And even in those scenes kind of give something, you know, even a little bit like, you know, Hey, you know, I know a scene between a mother and a son before he goes out and runs out of the woods, isn't the most exciting thing in the world, but I'm really proud of the cinematography in that scene. I'm proud of the lighting. I'm proud of the, the little Easter egg that we got in that scene. And even though it's not like the best scene in the film for like gore and stuff like that, it's still a good and well-executed scene yeah. that and it told people that this was a real family, that this was a real relationship that these two had, a mother and a son, and they were connected and they loved each other and they had history and we didn't have to spell it out. You know, we just had to show an interaction between them that made us feel like they were real people. And then we moved on. And, and, and that's important, but that sets it up so we can get to a moment when we know that these this, this love that this mother has for a son, that when we dissolve from her son's face in a photo that he took of them into his dead face, that we all of a sudden feel our heart sink in our chest. I can't just do the heart sinking in the chest part just by doing the dissolve. I have to set those up with telling the story of these characters so that by the time you get back there, that you feel something and that the imagery and the and the audio of, of what you're hearing and what you're seeing are making you feel a certain way and creating that experience for you. And that, and that's what we do as directors is we create that experience for the audience. Oh yeah. Before we wrap this up, where can the listeners follow you to watch for the next crowdfunding and to watch for updates on the, I, I hopefully the conclusion of mm -hmm. the three-way battle between Jarvis, Jason, and uh, Kyle McLeod. Yeah. <laughs> um, and D Diana Hill will be back too, the mom from Never Hike in the Snow. She's the other character that's going to gonna be very important in the story. And Rick Cologne. So there's there's a lot of people that are coming back and, and all that stuff. If, if fans want to follow us on Womp Stomp Films, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Um, W-O-M-P-S-T-O-M-P-F-I-L-M-S. Um, on all those platforms, um, definitely link and subscribe on, um, on YouTube and on in, in Instagram and, you know, any, any of those places. And you'll see us post about when we have uh, crowd funds, we actually have a crowd fund going right now for the ghost cut. Um, the ghost cut is all of the past four years of, of Womp Stomp films and, and one fell swoop. You're getting Disappear the Music Video, Never Hike in the Snow, and Never Hike Alone cut into one timeline, just one viewing. You don't have to put different discs in. It's just all right there for you. It includes additional bonus footage, additional appearances by Friday the 13th alumni, including Adam Marcus, Cynthia Kanai from Part 6, Deb Voorhees and Ron Sloan, Tracy Savage. Um, Tom Matthews lends his voice to the Disappear music video to do a brand new um, introduction to it. Um, there's a brand new scene post Never Hike in the Snow that explains what happened after uh, after the night that the detective, I mean, uh, Sergeant Mabry went missing and then go and finishes with Never Hike Alone and a preview of Never Hike Alone 2 at the end. Just a quick preview and, and it's available on YouTube. You can watch it right now, um, but you can get that Blu-ray disc um, we're also doing reprints of Never Hike in the Snow with a new artwork. We have reprints of Never Hike Alone, uh, which is the fan favorite art artwork, the version two with like the blue logo. Ooh. Uh, new interview uh, with myself. We're going to call it um, The Ghost Files, I believe we're calling it. And so it's going to be like the most the most frequently, frequently asked questions. Um, things like, what is the ghost cut? I sort of kind of explained it here, but I'll go in more detail on, on the 
video. Um, where does Never Hike Alone sit in the franchise and how and why? What is Ghost Jason? And a few other questions that we get a lot. Um, this sort of explain where we are and where Never Hike Alone is going. Um, a few bonus shorts. So we'll have uh, the Lost Tapes on there, which is a pretty cool uh, bonus short that we made with Cortland Gordon. A few original shorts like Pathosis and Imagine will be on there. Um, and, you know, subtitles and, and all the fun things that, that else that we put on there as well. Uh, we also did, we also recently recorded uh, a commentary with Tom Matthews and Vinny Guastafara um, and Andrew Lady, who plays Kyle McLeod and myself. The four of us sat down and watched the ghost cut actually last Saturday. And um, I'll be cutting that together for the thing. So this will be a very unique disc. It's not just a recycle of everything that we've already done. There's lots of new stuff on it. It's, you know, there's exclusive content to it. So it's definitely worth purchasing, even if you've purchased previous discs. Um, and if you have purchased previous discs, it's the perfect thing for like a gift for Christmas. You know, you want to gift somebody Never Hike Alone. Well, here's a way to give them everything in one fell swoop. Um, in March, we'll do Never Hike Alone 2 campaign, which will be pre-orders for the Blu-ray. Um, and probably a few other things. We're probably going to try to keep it simple and raise as much money as possible, um, allow people to become executive producers and, and all that fun stuff. Um, probably try and sell a few more things because Jason will get some damage throughout the film too. So we might have to pay for some different versions of things if things change. But obviously, like it's only if we raise the money. If we don't raise the money, we can't do those things. And we got to kind of simplify the ideas. So anytime a fan invests, it just allows us to then pursue a new idea and execute that idea and make the films much that much bigger and better. So definitely follow us at all those things. Again, Womp Stomp Films, W-O-M-P-S-T-O-M-P-F-I-L-M-S at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And listeners, you can... Find me and other great podcasters over at electronicmediacollective.com or on Twitter at Moose Media Inc. And Vincent, this has been A, very enlightening, and B, has been a hell of a time. And I will definitely have to have you on again when the final movie comes out and we can sit down and talk about how it all ended and all came together. I think, I think a lot of people see that. They like, they, from the outside looking in, it's like, oh, you're doing the fan films. Then you get underneath it, and you're like, oh, Wow, there's a lot that goes into this. Oh, yeah. And it's it's fantastic. I mean, this isn't just a job for you. It's definitely a passion, and it shows. And I said it before, I love Never Hike Alone. I love Never Hike Alone in the Snow. I look forward to the next project. Listeners, make sure you, if you haven't watched them yet, go to YouTube, watch the videos, go to Indiegogo, back the project, help get this stuff made. Please. You know, and, and like I said, if you haven't watched them, you don't know what you're missing out on. Go watch these videos and you'll see this this is quality work here. So just, you know, once again, Vincent, thanks for stopping by. And, you know, I, I will definitely have you on again so we can talk about the next movie and push it. And I hope you're definitely. Indie- I, mean, I think when, when we're, we're crowdfunding in March, definitely a good time to come out. And, um, oh, yeah be shooting next summer and obviously after it comes out i'd love to come back on and see what you think i mean that's sort of the best part is seeing the reaction on friday the 13th oh yeah so we'll, we'll definitely get the uh, crowdfunding yep. uh, put out there and help you get the money you need to get this rolling and get the story told well we're getting there one one day at a time <laughs> one day <laughs> in time right all right horror fans until tomorrow mash on This has been Moose's Monster Bash. Come back for more chills and thrills if you dare.